to the GBC Sermon Podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. This message from our Sunday church service is part of the resources we provide as we seek to see lives changed by Jesus. You could also listen to our Big Three podcast, a conversation that unpacks three big questions raised from sermons like this one. You can find more information about Gaimia Baptist Church as well as discipleship resources and an opportunity to join us in person or online on our website, if you've been around for the last couple of weeks, you know that we're in this series that we've entitled The Prelude to the Passion, in which we've been looking at the um, passages in the synoptic gospel so far and tonight in the gospel of John that are included just before the weeks of what we would call Holy Week, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem uh, and then through to His death and His resurrection. If you're unfamiliar with the term synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they're called that by biblical scholars because they tell the story of Jesus' ministry from a very similar viewpoint. So, sin, S-Y-N, which is in, in the word synonym, or you, know, you have the words that mean the same things, and optic would make some sense to you. So they tell the story from a similar point of view or viewpoint. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all kind of read much the same. They begin with John the Baptist, and they make their way all the way through the story. Uh, John's gospel is quite different. But in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the last stories that were told before Jesus enters into Jerusalem. The reason being that we know how important the events of the last week of Jesus' life are. In all of the Gospels, all of the Gospels, there's a disproportionate amount of material that's focused on that last week, which just from the perspective of an author tells you that it's obviously important. The author wants to focus a great deal of the time that they have on the issues of that week. And so it's worth paying some attention to that as we go through. But then the story that happens just before Jesus enters into Jerusalem functions as a bit of a, a hinge. It's the last thought we have before we come to these events. It's kind of the lens through which we look through uh, it's the event that is most freshly in our mind before Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So I think it was, a, was it a couple weeks ago that Matt looked at blind Bartimaeus, is that right? And blind, blind Bartimaeus then cries out, you know, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. All right? And that, that son of David that, that, that um, indicates kingship then shapes what happens when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and everyone's cheering and kind of hurrahing for Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. We're given this kind of a lens to look at what's taking place. And so I want to have a look tonight at John chapter 12, 1 to 11, this last scene before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and what John wants us to have front of mind as we come into the events of the next couple of weeks. Now, in all four gospel accounts, there is an account of Jesus being anointed by a woman at a dinner. It's never happened to me. Apparently, it happens fairly frequently in the ancient world, right? Uh, there are accounts in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14 that are very similar to what we find here in John. Uh, they take place at Bethany, same location, and there's the same uh, criticism about the fact that this perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Uh, Luke chapter 7 has a very different kind of account where it's uh, a woman uh, who is described as being a 
sinful woman who is not necessarily anointing Jesus' feet with perfume, but is weeping over His feet and then wipes them with her hair. So there's a number of very different kind of stories and tellings. There's some questions that scholars have about whether this is the same event, are these different events, are there four or five, and all the sorts of things. And, but the one thing that I was drawn to is I just did a really quick comparison of all four of those tellings is how little Jesus has to say in this account. If you have your Bible with you, I don't know if your, uh, your version on your phone has like a red letter version, but if you just have a good look at the 11, 11 verses, Jesus only has kind of two verses. He basically says two things, leave her alone, this is for my burial, and you'll always have the poor with, me, with you. That's all He says. It's the shortest statement that Jesus makes in any of the anointings. And in fact, in the other anointing passages, Jesus speaks, and it's quite a long section. It kind of wraps up the whole thing, and that's where it ends. It's like Jesus speaks, and then we're done. Here, Jesus speaks, and then John kind of continues the story with what's happening at the party. Um, there is a lot going on in this passage. And it struck me that it, it felt a little bit like um, that scene in Lord of the Rings, and I'm sorry if you haven't seen the movie, but I'm going to kind of, I'm going to assume that most of you have seen at least this, or can think of a similar example. Because there's a scene in the Fellowship of the Ring, which is the first of the movies, where um, uh, Elrond at the House of Rivendell has called for a council to determine what should be done with the Ring of Power. Uh, and so they have gathered elves and dwarves and men from all over the place, and some hobbits are there, as, as, you, as you always have to have a hobbit, apparently, in Lord of the Rings. And there's this scene where they begin arguing about what should be done with the ring. I don't know if you remember it, but the dwarves are arguing with the elves, and the men are yelling, and Gandalf's yelling, and everyone's kind of carrying on. And then Frodo, in the midst of it all, says very quietly, as loud as he can, but still quietly, I will take the ring. And nobody hears him because everything is just happening all at once. And he says it again, I will take the ring, and then things begin to settle down and everyone listens to what he has to say. It reminded me of that because this whole story, there's all sorts of stuff going on, and nobody seems to pay attention to what Jesus says. I mean, I don't know what you thought of when you heard that read. I don't know if you thought it was some sort of quiet dinner party where everyone was sitting very demurely and thoughtfully eating their food. But there was a lot going on here. And just kind of follow me through, and I'll just kind of point out just how, not necessarily raucous, but just how much was happening, particularly wrapped around the person of Jesus. So it says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Now, that timing is actually fairly important for us because the previous chapter has ended with the start of the Passover festival, the, the, the opening section of it in Jerusalem. And everyone in Jerusalem is asking, is Jesus going to show up? Is Jesus going to appear here? But they also knew that if He was, it was going to be on the slide because the religious leaders had put the word out that they wanted Him arrested as soon as He showed up. So Jesus shows up in Bethany, and there's automatically some buzz about the place. Because the one that everyone was hoping would appear is close to appearing, and that's pretty significant. But we're told a little bit more, because this is, he came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. The fact that people were asking where Jesus was was because he had been essentially in hiding for about three months. 
the religious leaders had tried to kill him, and so he had left Jerusalem and gone to the eastern side of the Jordan River, kind of outside of their, uh, out of the Judean jurisdiction into another different jurisdiction. Uh, and there he had kind of been for a while, and he hadn't spent a lot of time back in Judea. The only time that he had come back into Judea was when he had heard that Lazarus, his good friend, was sick. And he had made this foray back to Judea. He had raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead for four days, and then he had retreated back to the other side of the Jordan. So when he comes back to Bethany, this is the first time in, I don't know, four, five, six weeks that he has been with the family of the man whom he has raised. I just want you to think about this for a moment. Some of you have lost people close to you. Imagine if that person had been raised from the dead by Jesus and he came back through town. And he called you and said, hey, I'm going to be in Sydney for a few days. Can I stop by? Yes. Yes, you may. Right? And that's exactly what happens here. Because we're told that dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha, Lazarus's sister, served the meal. So I want you to think, what kind of a meal is this? This is not a dour, somber, honoring of Jesus in some sort of low-key way, is it? This is Mary and Martha throwing a party to celebrate the fact that their brother was dead and is now alive. And for the last month or more, we have been restored to Him. He is not sick. He is well. He is here. Jesus is the one who raised Him, and we want to honor Him tonight. This is not somber, is it? This is… it's on. Like, this is a party. And they're not honoring Jesus because He is the Son of God. They're honoring Him because He is a great and powerful prophet, that He has done the will of God, that He's someone special. They haven't quite figured that all out yet, but this is a really big deal. And it's in that context then, while Jesus is reclining at that table, because in the ancient world that's what would happen, they would recline at the table with their kind of feet out, and they would eat with one hand as, they kind of, as the food was served. Lazarus is there reclining with Him, and Mary, Martha's sister, and Lazarus's sister, takes about a pint of pure nard, this expensive perfume, and pours it on Jesus' feet. Now again, in Luke's account, this is the, there's an anointing by a sinful woman. Here, there's no indication that Mary is repentant or repenting for anything. Why do you think Mary has broken open this jar of expensive perfume on this night? Well, it's a party to celebrate the fact that Jesus raised my brother from the dead, and He's right here. Now, the, the act of anointing Jesus' feet, which seems a little bit strange to us, was a little bit more common. It's quite likely that Jesus' feet had already been washed when He had come in, as was the custom in the ancient world. But now there's this anointing of His feet significance of the message that Jesus brought. The undoing of a woman's hair in the ancient world was a sign of humility, not regularly done in public. And to wipe his, his feet with her hair, a little bit, you'd have to say, a little bit um, unconventional, was nonetheless kind of, shall I say, broadly enough accepted for no one to be scandalized by what had happened. The whole place is filled with this wonderful perfume, which only adds to the general tenor of the festival feel right? 
this is what's taking place. So you've got this kind of image of this really buzzy, funky, I mean, if they had music, it would have been loud. People would have been talking over one another. There would have been lots and lots going on. And then in the midst of all of that, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who we get some bizarre information about just by the side, as an aside, right, complains, why wasn't this perfume sold and given to the poor? So now we've got that going on, right? This kind of self-righteous moment where someone basically says, you know, that's a year's worth of perf- like a year's worth of salary, like 365 days worth of like wages. We could have used that, Judas says. Then as an aside, we're told that he wasn't interested in the poor. He was just a thief. He wanted more money in the coffers so he could kind of skim off the top, which raises the question, if John knew, then surely Jesus knew. And if Jesus knew he was a thief, why did he keep him as one of the 12? Just the questions go on and on, right? But in the moment, we have this additional layer. So there's this celebration, there's this party festival, there's this opportunity for thanksgiving and gratitude for what Jesus has done. There's this outpouring of love and of affection, of honor, we might say bordering on worship in terms of this expensive perfume that is poured on Jesus' feet. There's this um, remarkable moment, and then Judas kind of ruins it all by objecting about the fact that we probably could have sold this money. I don't know who heard him, because it's a party. I can't imagine he kind of clinked his glass for a while until everyone fell silent and said, I'd just like to object at what Mary has done. It's most likely he's complaining to the people around him that John is hearing some of these stories as we, as we kind of go on. And then it's in this context that we find, it's just after this context that Jesus speaks, but I want to jump over to the last part of the story, verse 9. Meanwhile, we're told, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So, you had a whole bunch of people there who weren't even really there to see Jesus. They just used it as an excuse to show up and kind of see Jesus, but mostly see Lazarus and go, I can't believe he's still alive. Or he's alive. That's, are you sure he was dead? Right? All that stuff is taking place. So, the house is packed. I mean, this is a big party. Mary and Martha are obviously wealthy people. The three of them, right, the three of them are able to keep a jar of pure nard worth a year's worth of wages. Just have it on hand, right? They're able to throw a party for a large group of people. In fact, anyone who wants to show up can show up. It sounds like they just kind of said, hey, Jesus is in town. We're going to honor him. If you're around, show up. Open house. And a whole bunch of people did. Just hangers on, just kind of looking, kind of seeing what's happening. And out of this, we get the report that the religious leaders decided that they were going to kill Lazarus as well because, well, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, and so we'll just get rid of you too. This is, this is all that's going on in here. And I just want you to kind of just want to pause for a moment and reflect then on the various expectations that people have about Jesus in this passage. So, a whole bunch of people who are no doubt expecting Jesus to do something miraculous or special at Passover. Because in John's gospel, Jesus shows up in Jerusalem at a number of these great festivals and does something pretty outstanding. There's some uh, confrontation with the religious leaders. There's some miracles that take place. They're asking for Him, and now He's here. He's going to do something miraculous. But throughout John's gospel, the miracles don't necessarily lead to faith. Uh, Jesus performs miracles, He raises Lazarus from the dead, and it doesn't really lead to anyone believing in Him. 
It just leads to a bunch of people wanting to see if Lazarus was really alive and the religious leaders to try to kill Lazarus again. You've got Mary and Martha and Lazarus who perhaps are closest to understanding who Jesus is, and yet they're holding a a banquet to honor this act that He did for them. Appropriate? Yeah, absolutely. He raised Lazarus from the dead. You want to say thank you in some way. If you were a person of means, this is not a bad way to do it. It's an appropriate response, but Jesus kind of turns all of that. Then you've got Judas, who's kind of on the whole social justice program of Jesus. Is that appropriate? Yes, absolutely. Is it appropriate right here? No, not at all. And not just because it's a killjoy at a banquet, but because of what Jesus has to say. And Jesus just speaks, and it's a word that doesn't make any sense in this context. You've got a group of people there wanting to honor Him because of what He has done for them in raising Lazarus from the dead. Mary has just poured out this perfume and her heart on His feet. Judas is whinging about something, right? And this is what Jesus says, "'Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial.'" Talk about a killjoy. So in the context of this party honoring Him, Jesus talks about His burial, and then He says, "'You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have Me.'" And no one responds to that in the story. Judas doesn't go, oh yeah, fair enough. Mary and Martha don't go, oh, for your burial, what are you talking about? Uh, Lazarus doesn't turn to him and say, are you sure that that, like nobody seems to hear what Jesus has to say. It's like Frodo. Everyone's talking, everyone's shouting, everyone's carrying on, and Frodo says the most important words in the scene, I will take it. Nobody hears it. Everyone's focused on Jesus, but nobody hears what He says. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem in the very next kind of passage, everyone's talking about Jesus, but nobody understands what He's doing because nobody listens. They're just fascinated with various aspects of what He does or what He teaches or uh, what He might do next. But no one has paused to listen. These are His words. Leave her alone. It was only Judas. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. When I am buried, when I die. Now, the day is a week before He's going to die, first of all, right? It's at a party celebrating what He has done. Surely someone would ask him, Lord, what do you mean by that? Right? Nobody does. Even his commentary about the fact that you'll always have the poor among you. There'll be ample opportunity to give. Now is not the right time. Nobody pushes back and says, well, what do you mean by that? He speaks and goes unheard. This is the last scene before we enter into the events of Holy Week where again and again, we have the same thing, don't we? Whether it's Jesus entering into Jerusalem, whether it's, if you have a look at the headings, belief and unbelief amongst the Jews, even when Jesus washes His disciples' feet, He sits back down at the table and says, do you understand what I've done for you? They don't respond. 
He's like, let me tell you what you mean, what you, what you want to know. Peter misunderstands him. Lord, don't wash my feet, wash my whole body. Jesus is like, you're already clean. I'm just washing your feet. Listen to him. This is the prelude to the Passion. The very last scene is this chaotic party where everyone has expectations about Jesus. Everyone is talking about Jesus. Everyone thinks they know what Jesus is about, and yet no one seems to be listening to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Which is not a bad application for us then, wouldn't you think? Because we're about to get to Easter. We're about to focus again on the great story, the events that we've heard time and time and time again. For those people of faith all over the world, Jesus is going to be on our lips. It's going to be on our hearts and minds in a slightly different way as we focus on this centerpiece of His salvation for us. This work that was so important that all the authors slow right down to talk about it. They obviously want us to focus on it. But are we ready to listen to what Jesus has to say? Or are we just bringing our own expectations, our own presuppositions, our own assumptions about it? And I'd like to challenge you this Easter, uh, to whatever extent you are able to participate, whether it's being here on the Sundays, you know, next Sunday is Palm Sunday and then the week after is Easter Sunday, whether you're able to attend the Tenebrae service or the Good Friday service, but that you would take some time over the course of this Easter and listen to Jesus' words and try to the best of your ability to hear the story afresh and anew. Maybe that needs to be your prayer. And for many of you, you know this story, don't you? You've been around the Easter circuit a few times, right? It's easy when stories are familiar for us to um, miss the significance of them. There is truth to the proverb that familiarity breeds contempt, isn't it? We're so familiar with something that we don't pay enough attention to it. We're coming to Easter, and there's another opportunity for us to hear from Jesus. So again, whether that's attending some of these services with an open heart and open mind, whether it's rereading the stories of the Passion, just rereading them for yourself, not relying on what other people have said or will say about these stories, but turning to them again, about paying attention to the words in red letters. What is it that Jesus has to say? In these last days, as He speaks about what's about to take place, what is it that He has to say? And what are the implications then for you as a follower of Jesus? We hope this message has challenged and strengthened you, encouraged you to pray and rely on God and blessed you today. If you'd like to get to know some of our church community, you can listen to the We Are The Church podcast an open conversation with real people who call GBC home as they share stories of God at work in their lives and how their lives are being changed by Jesus.